We're considering Romans 14 and the beginning of chapter 15 in our sermon series on Romans. And you can turn there either in your Bibles or in your worship guide. And as you turn there, I'll ask you to stand if you're able. And as you're standing, I will open us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the great gift of your word, and we do not come to it lightly. We pray that your spirit would be upon us, giving us understanding and moving our hearts to be obedient to all that you would have for us, understanding that in your love it is the best thing for us. So we pray that you would move our hearts and render us uh, desperately seeking your will, desperately locating ourselves and seeking to find ourselves in the midst of your love, that we might be more and more yours. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is because his own master that he sends, it is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. 
For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as God has welcomed you for the glory of God. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. The theme of this morning's sermon is that you are a horrible person, and that I'm not as horrible as you, and that makes me feel really good. Uh, We laugh a little bit, but it's fun to point out the hypocrite, isn't it? Fun to look at somebody who has boldly proclaimed a certain degree of truth, to live by a certain standard, only to move away from that standard, and to be caught in that. A couple of fun examples, so to speak. Uh, is One is Rush Limbaugh, very famous radio personality that you're probably aware of, a conservative uh, talk show host, and uh, at one point went out of his way to say uh, he was responding to the claim that states uh, disproportionately prosecute black men for drug crimes and not uh, equally uh, uh, prosecute white people for drug crimes. And Limbaugh said, well, of course, all the whites should be prosecuted equally and sent up the river, a direct quote, which were words that he had to face when in 2003 he was uh, caught purchasing a massive amount of OxyContin, a painkiller known as hillbilly heroin that he was addicted to. Or you might take the example of Congressman Ed Schrock. He was an outspoken opponent against anything gay, But in 2004, audio tapes were made public of Schrock. A married man had called into uh, an adult phone line, Megamates, and was offering a detailed description of the kind of person he was looking for. And that detailed uh, description made it clear that it was not a woman. Doesn't that make you feel good? Right? You're, You're a hypocrite with a lowercase h. But there are those who are hypocrites with an uppercase h. And you're not as bad. You're really, you're pretty, comparatively, you're a decent person. I'm going to close in prayer. (laughs) You may think that these examples are a little bit unjustified giving the passage. I mean, we're looking at Romans 14 and 15, which is about real issues that were being debated within the church, whether or not to eat meat and some other examples that we'll talk about. And that these are really um, more cases of hypocrisy than gray fields ethically. But one of the things that Paul really wants to do business with in chapter 14 and the beginning of 15 in Romans, and something that we want to do business with today, is our tendency, perhaps even our eagerness, to be judgmental. To look at someone's life, to look at someone's character, to pick out some flaw, to focus on that, and as a result of that judgmentalism, to make ourselves feel better, to make us feel that we are more righteous or have more things uh, together in a more substantive way. And this this is part of the problem. Just see, Paul mentions this judgmentalism a number of times throughout that has the potential to cause fractures, divisions within the church in Rome, and he wouldn't have that. In fact, you can see really where Paul is headed in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 15. What is his goal in this passage? We are to pursue harmony with each other so that with one voice we may glorify God. Well, how do we, how do we produce, how do we pursue harmony 
So that, so that we have, despite the diversity of our voices, that comes together as one voice that truly glorifies God. Well, Paul says we welcome one another. But the welcoming he's talking about is a radical welcoming. It is an openness to one another, an embracing of one another, that we would be more intent on mutual upbuilding than on that which concerns ourselves, than that which we might perceive to be our own needs. We're to be more interested in building up our brothers and sisters than in focusing on what we may perceive to be our own needs. And I want to spend some time looking, uh, kind of really unpacking what goes on in our hearts when we start to go down that path of comparison and judgmentalism, and why is it beautiful that Jesus sets us free from that? Because it's, a, it's an awful road. It eats you alive, uh, and we'll see some of that. So let's jump into 14 and 15. Uh, it's a relatively famous passage in which um, Paul is dealing with the, the challenge of ethical situations that are gray. Uh, if you've been a Christian for very long, you have come to realize that the Bible doesn't address every situation that you encounter in life. It doesn't take very long for you to run into a situation in which you don't exactly know what's right or wrong or what you should do, and you may pursue biblical wisdom to apply to that situation, but it's not abundantly clear. In fact, it's it's not clear even to the extent that Christians are going to disagree on what the answer is. There's going to be a lack of harmony in terms of deciding what is the right thing to do in these particular gray areas. And notice that Paul is, is saying really that these things, uh, some things have to be decided by conscience. And Christians may decide almost opposing viewpoints in a certain area, and he's urging respect for those opposing viewpoints. So Romans 14 and 15 is about teaching us how do we live in the midst of gray areas? How do we live in the midst of things that we're going to disagree about? Well, what were the gray issues for Rome? What are the Christians and the church in Rome fighting about? What is Paul concerned about? Well, you may have noticed that right at the outset, he he identifies the issue of eating meat and a diet of only vegetables. And then he mentions considering one day better than another in terms of days of observance in verse 5. And in verse 21, he mentions drinking wine. Why are these things coming to the fore? Why are they on the table? Paul, at a number of times in his letter to the Romans, has indicated to us that he's concerned about Jewish-Gentile relationships, particularly Jews who would have converted to recognize Jesus as Messiah and become what we would call Jewish Christians, and Gentiles, everybody else, who have also come to recognize that Jesus is Lord. And so they're both worshiping Jesus, but they're coming from profoundly different cultural places. All right? Paul's also concerned with how they might relate to Jews. You know, you don't, you want to promote Jesus as Messiah, but not necessarily in such a way that a Jew is not going to consider Jesus. You don't want to offend them necessarily to the degree that they are completely outside the scope of considering that Jesus might be the the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He wants to leave this this open. So all these concerns have been apparent in the letter. And Paul starts to talk about these issues, and he begins to describe two groups, which he identifies as strong and weak. Who are the strong and who are the weak? Clearly we're not talking about physical prowess, but how they judge certain issues. Look at, um, we see in verses 3 and 4, if you look there with me, Paul writes, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. 
For God has welcomed him. You are to pass judgment. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? All right. Paul is saying in verse 3 and 4 that really you're not to pass judgment no matter what side you take. Well, again, what are these issues that are going on in the church in Rome? First, the issue of meat all right, and wine. Both abstaining from meat and wine were common Jewish practices of demonstrating piety. But the issue was even more complex in terms of meat uh, typically began its uh, trip, shall we say, to the dinner table by being sacrificed to a god in the ancient Roman world. In fact, you would go to buy your meat to a temple. That's where the meat market would be. And so if you were buying meat and wanted to eat meat, you didn't know if it had been sacrificed to God. Most likely it had, to a God. Most likely it had. You didn't know which God it had been sacrificed to. And so rather than cross a line of participating in something that is oriented by another God, you just abstain from meat and eat vegetables. It's a safer road from this perspective. Well, other people, including Paul, He says, I think it's fine to eat whatever. The people are going to say, you know what? We've understood in Jesus that there's only one God. And all other gods are false. So really, the sacrifice to a foreign god is something that's false. It's not a big deal. We can participate in eating of meat. Paul says both, both are acceptable positions. And what you shouldn't do is be intent on judging the other person or critiquing them for what they're doing. Mention wine. Paul isn't exactly clear before us. We don't know exactly what the days of observance that are being talked about. Uh, the lead contender would be arguments regarding the Sabbath on whether or not it should be observed and how it should be observed right? going on the church. Paul says you're going to have differences of opinions on these issues and that you, whatever side you're, you're taking, the point is not the side that you take but that you don't pass judgment on the other In verses 5 and 6, he says, listen, you have to understand the intent of what each person is doing. If I abstain from meat, that person is abstaining from me because they're trying to honor the Lord. And if you feel like you can eat meat, you're doing that because you're trying to honor the Lord. You feel like if you abstain from meat, you'd be acknowledging the existence of gods. They don't actually exist, so I'm going to partake in meat. He says, if both sides are seeking to honor the Lord, then why get into a ruffle over it? Why make an issue of it? It's just going to breed division. But again, we said Paul is speaking in terms of strong and weak. And if you look in 15.1, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul's identifying in the course of this passage that he and those who think it's okay to eat meat are the strong. Those who feel the necessity to pull away and not eat meat, to be safe, are the weak, but he says it's the responsibility of the strong to show deference to the weak. Now, right at the the uh, the outside outset, that might be um, it's a little surprising, right? Don't we often say, "Who do we consider the strong?" Sometimes those who uphold tradition. You say, "I'm I'm I know the history." of such and such, I'm going to uphold this tradition, I'm not going to change. In this case, in Romans 14, those who understand what has been done newly in Jesus Christ and apply that are actually the strong. The weak are those who are holding to tradition. It's a little bit counterintuitive. And yet Paul says if you're part of the strong, then it's the responsibility lies on you to defer to the weak. Don't cause that person to stumble. 
If you're going to do something that trips them up, if by eating meat you throw them into a conundrum of what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to understand the relationship to God and that they're potentially sinning, then don't do it. It's not worth any of those things. Abstain. Now, it feels a little bit separated from us, does it not? Right? Have you argued much about which God you're, the meat you buy at the store has been sacrificed to? Right? Or which day to observe, or whether you're celebrating Passover or not, or, or how exactly, certainly our tradition has argued over how to celebrate and observe the Sabbath. And while we may not be experiencing these particular issues, this reality that Paul has gone through over and over again, he warns not against the position that you take, but against judging your brother and sister. Will we participate plenty in judging? Right? It's the spirit that Paul is after in Romans 14 and 15, not a position. And so it's the spirit of judgmentalism that we must be mindful of in our own community, lest we suffer the same lack of unity, lack of harmony, that prevents us from with one voice glorifying God. And so the question for you becomes, where are you, where am I prone to judge our brothers and sisters? Where are we prone to look down upon another believer for the practice they choose to engage in and to puff ourselves up? I'll tell you the four that I feel like I see the most often. Number one, uh, I see people judge other people about the type of schooling that they choose for their children. Number two, I've seen people judge each other uh, regarding personal habits. Um, I mean by that how perhaps you take care of yourself or the priorities that you have. Um, I've seen people who aren't keen on going to the gym say things like, well, I'd go to the gym if I wasn't so busy working and raising my kids. Clearly we know the priority of that person who's fit and in shape. I'm sorry for their children. It's too bad they don't love them more. And the person who goes to the gym, right, says, well, I'm sorry for that person who doesn't have good priorities and clearly spends so much time pursuing the wrong thing that they have neglected the right thing. My body is a temple. I don't think God would like their temple. Right? (laughs) Oh, you laugh because I'm hitting close to home. (laughs) Number three, I've seen people judge uh, each other on how they spend their money. Did you see the new car? that that person bought? Did he not just see the India video today? Jesus is weeping right now <laughs> for how he spends his money. All right, and four, uh, I've seen people uh, judge each other on the use of birth control. Right. Are you kidding me? The children are a blessing of God. Why would that person want to restrict how many children that they have? They are sinning. Right? The church would be built up if everyone had ten children. And the other person saying, uh, you shouldn't have any children. You, the more children you have, the worse the world you make, you make the world worse. Because you're not a good parent and your children are horrible. And you're not building up the church, you're making the church worse by procreating. Okay? Right? Oh, in the quietness of your heart. Okay? So those are the kinds of things. We have plenty of judgmentalism going on. You can all think of things that I haven't mentioned, I'm sure of whether you, both where you have felt judged and where you know yourself to be inclined to judge someone else. So let's, let's take just one example 
take education as an example and try to apply Romans 14 and 15 to it a little bit as an example. So some argue that it's essential, it's godly, it's the right thing to do to send your children to a school that offers a Christian-based education. Why would you allow your children to be uh, educated by a pagan institution? You are in big trouble. That's option one. Option number two. Some argue that outsourcing education at all is an abdication of parental responsibility. For most of the history of the world, parents have been educating their children. And if you outsource your education, well, you've handed in your parent card. You're not being responsible. You're turning over your child to a stranger. And option number three is, uh, if you don't send your child to public school, well, your child is never going to learn how to exist in the world under your leadership. You're setting up your child for failure. Right? They won't be able to interact with the world well. They won't do well on the outside. They don't know what it means to be, to exist as a Christian in the context of a world that is alien. And so you've done a tremendous disservice for your child. All right, which is wrong? Which is right? We're going to take a vote. <laughs> no, we're not. We will never take a vote on that. Why? Because there is no right or wrong, right? What's the strong position? Who's the weak in that case? Right? I have no idea. I don't think there is a strong or weak. I don't think there is a right or wrong. I think it's something that you have to decide as a family in terms of what you're going to do and what you're going to prioritize. And all kinds of factors come into it. Right? And it's a decision that we should respect. It's a decision that we should be able to sit down and say, you know what, I decided this for reasons X, Y, and Z. And we should say, huh, that's interesting. You know what? We made a different decision for reasons A, B, and C. And I can learn from your reasons, and you can learn from my reasons, and we can keep the conversation going. Do you know, when I came to Trinity Harbor for the first time, it was 2006, and one of the, one, uh, I was at a, a dinner, uh, or lunch probably, lunch after service downstairs, and somebody came up to me, hadn't met him before, he walks up and he goes, so how do you intend to educate your children? And Molly was two, and Charlotte was nine months. And I said, I have no idea. I haven't given it that much thought. It's three years away. And that wasn't an adequate enough answer for him because his position was settled, and they left. Before I'd even made up my mind. Because he knew what was wrong, what was right and what was wrong, and I had not chosen the right answer. All right? There's still a lot of judgmentalism over these things that occur as a result of us... um, landing on something and thinking that it's absolutely necessary. We have Jesus on the cross, but then we say, but you also need this, and certain things become very important to certain people. Surely because to some degree they they affirm our righteousness and they make us feel strong. It's easier to feel strong when someone is doing a weak thing, and you can claim a position of superiority. This is really a pervasive problem. Not only, what's interesting is, you know, the church is always, Scripture recognizes this always going on in the life of God's people, but it's become a very public discussion, uh, apart from the Bible or apart from the Christian story, the degree of contempt and judgmentalism that exists now in society. People are recognizing that contempt, which is a form of anger, is a, uh, is a very, it's a very easy way to deal with things. And this is why, you know, if you feel anger as a result of injustice, well, you feel like you have to right the wrong. There's something that you have to do, right? Or 
You may not feel anger, but you might feel fear or disgust at something, and then you feel compelled to flee. But with contempt, which is this notion of feeling superior, it's this notion of looking down upon something. You don't really have to do anything. You just get to enjoy the moment. And it's something that is uh, it's, uh, completely shareable. It's a commodity that likes to be spread around and participated in. Right? All you have to do is share some story at the water cooler, a little bit of cynicism about something or something that you, weakness you observed in someone, and you have your friend shaking their head and saying, yep, mm-hmm, and you both smile and walk away, and there's, that, there's the shared joy of contempt. You both feel a little bit superior as a result of the thing that you have uh, put down. Why, why do our hearts work like this? How does this kind of unfold? And as I said, um, I'm borrowing uh, from a book which is really quite fascinating, which is called The Happiness Hypothesis. And it's a, a collection of social studies and cultural inquiry. And what um, social scientists are realizing is that is that we, uh, we grow up and train ourselves. We're very disposed to enter into contempt and to judge one another. So Dan Batson at the University of Kansas did a study, about, uh, which was supposed to be a, a study about teams and rewards. And it was fairly clever. Uh, he, he brought in uh, two people who were separated. In fact, they never actually met each other. But one of the people was chosen and said, you're, you're going to be on a team with another person. And we're going to study how people respond to receiving rewards in the mix of leadership. Uh, but what we're going to do, you're going to decide who is the leader and who gets the reward. That's up to you. And the other person on your team, they're not going to know how the decision was made. And so we encourage you to do it in as fair a way as possible. And so we're going to give you a coin. Some people like to flip a coin. And then they left the room. And... Uh, so people who chose not to flip the coin, and they knew if the coin had been accessed because it was in a sealed plastic bag, so you had to tear open the bag to get to the coin. People who hadn't torn open the bag, 90% of themselves chose themselves to receive the reward. Right? They said, hey, there's a reward involved. Uh, yeah, we're supposed to be fair, but no one knows the outcome of what's going to happen. I'm going to give the reward to myself. So he said, well, maybe it was different with those who tossed the coin. And it was also 90%. So people, what they did was, oh, I'm supposed to flip a coin. They opened the bag, they flipped the coin, they didn't get the result they wanted, and they still gave themselves the reward. Because no one's going to know the outcome. So they changed the study a little bit, said, how are we going to make this different? Um, And so what they did was they put a mirror in the room, a big mirror so a person would see themselves, and they gave a short little kind of encouragement to fairness as the person went in. And suddenly the effects of the study started to change dramatically. Now this is one study in a sea of studies which basically all affirm this notion. You care more about appearing virtuous than you care about being virtuous. Okay? That's just reality. If you have any trouble acknowledging that, uh, right? we're not testing you, we're not going to ask you, so you can be honest with yourself. You care more about appearing virtuous than about being virtuous. That's what we've called for a long time sin. So social scientists are starting to say, hey, this is a reality in our culture, and we better figure out how to deal with it. 
But let's go down that road for just a minute. Well, how do you have to live if you care more about appearing virtuous than about being virtuous? Right? You look skeptical. You should not be skeptical. Right? You speed. If I'm in the car with you, you think twice. Why? Because the pastor's in the car. Right? If I walk into a conversation, you all stop using off-color language. Jokes suddenly cease. Right? You care more about appearing virtuous in whatever social context you find yourself than about being virtuous. All right? That is true for all of us. I can't believe you look skeptical. You're going to have to meet one-on-one with everyone this week. So, that being the case, you realize that once you realize that you're more about appearance than actual reality, you're constantly engaging life and managing appearances so that you... Um, you, you conduct, you, you orchestrate the appearance that you want before everyone that you appear virtuous. That's a hard way to live. It's tiring. It requires a lot of work. Uh, ben Franklin put it well, Benjamin Franklin. When he, uh, he went through a season where he was a very committed vegetarian. He had given up meat. He thought it was good ethically. He thought it would be good health-wise. And then he found himself on a ship, and they were roasting cod. And he said the smell overtook him. And he desperately wanted to eat some fish. And so he walked over and is standing on the sideline. And they cut open some of the cod and he sees that there are fish inside the belly of the cod. And he says, oh, well, if the cod eats something, there's no reason I shouldn't eat the cod. And proceeds to dine extravagantly on cod on the ship. And afterwards wrote this, so convenient a thing is it to be a reasonable creature since it enables one to find or make a reason for everything one has a mind to do. Indeed. All he had to do once desiring to eat the meat was to come up with the right reason that gave him license, that gave him the continuing appearance of virtue and reasonableness, and then he could proceed. And how many times are we beset with a desire, and all we need is the right reason to proceed, to give us that air of virtuosity, Mm. That's either a made-up word or the wrong word. (laughs) Gary, that's for you. Write that down. Uh, Maybe it's not. I don't know. To to think we're really good. How about that? And so we start going through life, uh, really being our own lawyers. Always evaluating what we're doing, our appearance, kind of arguing on our behalf, arguing against others, evaluating our self-presentations. And... um, One social scientist wrote this, you can spin a comparison either by inflating your own claims or by disparaging the claims of others. Right. So if I'm started down this line and I realize that there's something broken in me so that I care more about appearance than I do about the reality of who I am or what I'm doing, I have to manage that appearance. It becomes a nonstop endeavor to to manage my image, which requires me, essence, to be both a marketer and a lawyer, both to present a certain kind of image and to defend what I'm doing. And as I go down this road, then it becomes part of what I have to do to do this is to evaluate myself against others. And so I'm either going to exaggerate the claims about myself or I'm going to disparage others because those are the only two ways to maximize my appearance. By either exaggerating my claims of rightness or disparaging others so that I rise by, they, uh, by their descent. And we see the evidence bears out that people hold po- uh, pervasive positive illusions about themselves and their abilities. 
Because when we get, so we get to that place of our entire view of ourself being distorted, right? We disparage others, we inflate ourselves, we make ourselves out, we think our appearance is better than we actually are, and at that point we become entitled. We expect certain things. What does that mean? If you ask uh, spouses, husband and wives, to en- estimate the percentage of housework each one does, what do you think it adds up to? Not 100%. Right? Adds up to about, uh, on average, 120%. If you ask MBA students in a work group what they are contributing, and to estimate that percentage, the estimates add up to 139%. And study after study reveals that our opinion of ourselves is a little bit higher than the reality, than how other people perceive us, which is far more in line with reality. And so what you have to understand is that you are ridiculously biased toward yourself. right? And this is what's called now uh, naive realism, which is defined like this. Each of us, uh, hmm, I have a typo. And I'm trying to decide how to fill it in. Oh, I got it. Each of us thinks we see the world directly, as it really is. We further believe that the facts as we see them are there for all to see. Therefore, others should agree with us. If they don't agree, it follows either that they, do, they have not yet been exposed to the relevant facts or else that they are blinded by their interests and ideologies. People acknowledge that their own backgrounds have shaped their views. But such experiences are invariably seen as deepening one's own insights. And over and over again, in ministry, this is affirmed. Like, I struggle with this just as much as you do, but I get to see, some of you get to see more aspects of it in your work, uh, like I do, because people come in in distress, they come in unhappy with another person, and they sit down and want to talk. And then they say, um, you know, I have issue A, B, and C, And then 90% of the time is spent on issue X, Y, and Z of the other person. The problem is not oneself. The problem is the other person. They haven't haven't figured things out. They haven't come up with all the relevant information. And save to say, people all acknowledge that their backgrounds give them the unique insights. But when they ask, well, does the other person's background give them a unique insight? The answer is no, their background disposes them to come to the wrong conclusion. We are really messed up, right? So this is, this is, we have greater social science than Paul did that simply affirms, he's saying this is a problem for you all. You don't want to go down this road of judging each other. You want to take a posture of humility. You want to defer to the other's needs because you're probably not nearly as right as you think you are. And there are some issues that are just, God hasn't, been interested to address, and you need to work it out in community. And the way, one of the important aspects of working it out in community is by respecting each other and deferring to one another. We have to build each other up. Listen, in verse 10, Paul says, when you judge your brother, you despise him. Right? That's not a simple evaluation. It's you are doing something that is saturated with contempt when you judge someone inappropriately. And we're not talking about real sin issues that need to be judged and held accountable or dealt with. We're talking about gray ethical areas in which you might be inclined to be biased to yourself and build up your unrighteousness. Paul commands in verse 13 to stop. Don't do it. Don't go down this road. In verse 20, he says, respect another's conscience. And in verse uh 
17, he says, focus on the kingdom that is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, how in the world are you going to do all of this? You have to realize that, just like for Paul, Jesus is the one who sets you free. And very briefly, we can close with this. Because it's not terribly complicated to understand, it's terribly complicated or challenging, perhaps is a better word, to put into practice. And it's this. In verses 7 and 9, Paul says that we live and die to the Lord. And that God alone, particularly Jesus Christ, is judge. There's only one person who ultimately will judge all of us, and that is Jesus himself. Why should then we trust ourselves to the judgment of Jesus and not the judgment to ourselves? Well, look at verse 3 of chapter 15. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus, in love for you, said all of the reproachment, all of the hatred, all of the grumbling against God from his people, that can fall on me. In fact, I will take the judgment of God in your place so that my people will be set free. And that judgment already having taken place, we see the abundant love that Christ has for you and that he's already accepted you and made you one with him. And your pursuit of evaluating yourself is more about the standing you would like to have before others rather than it is the standing before the one who matters most. He loves you. He has died for you. He has taken your judgment on your behalf. So why do you feel so compelled to make yourself uh, what you think you should be in front of other people? Why must you play your own lawyer? Why must you disparage others to build yourself up? When you understand the love of Jesus and start to exist in it, that need diminishes. I don't need to evaluate myself compared to you because Jesus has already evaluated me. And even though... I am a really messed up person, which we've seen in the majority of the course of the sermon. He said, I love you and I'll make you whole. I don't need to disparage you. Instead, really, what I want you to do is experience that as well and to come to Christ as well and to enjoy that love and mercy so that you grow as well. And this is what it looks like, that we don't judge and despise our brother, but that we honor one another's conscience. And as verse 17 says, we focus on the kingdom righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that is really what you experience. For one moment, think of the person in in life that has the most contempt that you know. Are they happy or do they know anything of joy? Then think of the person that you know who is most content in Christ. How much joy do they know? It doesn't even compare. Because to be set free from the cycle of judgment and judgmentalism, which we apply to ourselves and to others, is to know the love of Christ. And knowing that love, we know that we're already accepted and don't have to make our own case. Let's give God thanks for that now. Father, we praise you this morning for the great love that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. We're sorry for how self-centered we are. And how much time we spend uh, defending ourselves, how much time we spend promoting our own agendas, how much time we disparage and despise our brothers so that we would be proven right. Father, help us to defer to one another's needs and to show the love that we have been shown in Christ and so to grow up in Him. 
And in that, what a remarkable community we will be. We pray that you would make us that community so that we testify of your love to the world and that with one voice, one harmonious voice, we bring you great glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.